0: So I want you to picture um, an outfielder. It's a baseball game. It's not like professional baseball, not even minor leagues. I'm talking little leagues. Like, you know, most of us, nah, well, none of us, let's be honest. None of us really went very far. I don't think of the ones of you that I know went very far in baseball. Uh, but some of us played little leagues, you know, like, like when we were kids. And, and picture an outfielder playing little league baseball is that outfielder ready to catch a ball? <laughs> no, no. What's, what's he more likely to be doing? He's more likely to be like, I don't know, picking dandelions, uh, playing with sunflower seeds, talking to his little sister over on the, the sidelines over here on the bleachers, counting the clouds and looking at hey, that one looks like a dinosaur, you know? They're doing anything but engaging with the game, right? They're not really. Ready. Yeah, that's not to say they were never ready. At one point, they were ready, right? They're wearing the uniform. They got the gloves, so they got dressed. They got ready. They got to the ballpark. They ran the laps at the beginning when the coach told them to. They stretched it out like the coach told them to. They did the warm up throws, everything they were supposed to do to get ready. At one point, they were ready. They were excited for the game. So, what happened? Well, baseball happened and they got bored because nothing happened. They're standing there, standing there, waiting and waiting and waiting in the outfield. Nothing is happening. So the one who was ready, he's no longer ready. Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 25, is picking up what he was saying, duh, in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, the disciples had been asking Jesus, well, what's the sign of your coming? How do, how do we know when it's going to be? They want to be ready. And Jesus, having talked about his return and the destruction of the temple and all these warning signs, is aware that they have his return on their minds. We want to be ready for it. So what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 25 is saying, but be warned, it will be a long time. You're going to be tempted to start picking dandelions and gazing at clouds and forgetting the work that you're supposed to be busy at because it will be a long time. The greatest challenge we face, apart from getting ourselves ready in the first place, receiving Jesus Christ and trusting in him, is staying ready. Staying faithfully ready. Not ready at one point in the past when we bowed the knee and prayed a prayer, but ready every day, faithfully ready today. That's a challenge that we face individually as believers. It's a challenge that we face corporately as a church on this, our 11th anniversary. Sometimes it can feel like week just rolls into week, rolls into week, and 11 years have gone by and the city is still in chaos and there's all kinds of corruption around us and some of the people that we hoped would change haven't changed yet and it just seems like things keep going. What Jesus is admonishing us to in Matthew 25 in light of the delay is to be faithfully ready. This text is going to tell us is going to emphasize our need for faithful readiness, and it's going to also give us, I think, the how and the why of faithful readiness. But first, these two parables with one point, trying to press on us, first of all, just the simple need, the need to be faithfully ready. Look at the first parable, verse 1 of Matthew 25, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Right off the hop, um, there's something important to say here. Uh, parables are supposed to take truths that are sort of abstract and bring them into a concrete reality with like an everyday kind of scenario. When you start reading about virgins and bridegrooms and lamps, um, all of a sudden you're like, what in the world is happening here? It's, it's so removed from our context historically. It's worth explaining so that we can get the... Get get the point behind what Jesus is doing. So understand these these ten virgins. It's not talking about their sexual chastity, although certainly that's implied. But that's not the main point. The main point is these are attendants to the groom, or people who are simply invited to the wedding to celebrate along with the groom. So you know when you go to the wedding and they're like, "Are you with the bride or the groom?" And then they seat you accordingly. These are ones who are celebrating with the groom. So they go with the groom, and the background is simply this: the the groom would go together with uh with with his father with his family, whatever the case would be, to the bride's house. And there the celebrations would begin, the festivities would begin. Uh, That would be just the initial stage though. He would get his bride and bring her with him back to his own family's house, and that's when the party would really kick off. Sometimes it would last for days on end. And and so these attendants are going with him. They're not going into the bride's house. They're just going to the bride's house. They're going to be invited to the main party back at the bridegroom's house. That's their role. Just be ready. Come with him, because like what kind of a party is it when no one shows up? So the bride Needs people with him to celebrate, to make a big deal, because this is worth celebrating. So they take their lamps and they go with the bridegroom. Remember, there's no street lights at that point, right? Like these are the only lights that they're going to have after dark. And five of them, these, these ten that go with him, five of them were foolish, we read in verse 2, and five of them are wise. What's the difference? When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now, Understand, each lamp is going to have oil in it already, right? That's how they're able to light them in the first place. But the wise ones bring like, you know, they bring like a jerry can, like an extra, like we got some on the side, because, here's the point, we don't know how long this thing's going to take, and we might need extra fuel. And so they are prepared. As the bridegroom, verse 5, was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept some people make a big deal about that, but as I'm always telling my wife, it's not a moral problem to fall asleep while someone's talking. I mean, <laughs> just to fall asleep when you're waiting over a long period of time. It's, it's not a problem that they fell drowsy and fell asleep. The, the point is not that they did something morally wrong. The, the point is simply this. It was a long time, so long that they fell asleep. That was unexpected. But some were prepared for it. At midnight, verse 6, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. This is what you're here for. This is the whole point. Let the party start. Come out to meet him, verse 7. Then all those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps. They got them going again because they'd gone out. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, basically, there's not going to be enough for us and you. You go buy some of your own. Should have thought of this ahead of time. Verse 10, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Verse 11, after the, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. So we got, we got our oil now. We got our lamps. Here we are. We're ready. But the point is, it's too late. They weren't ready when it mattered. Verse 12, he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, this is, this is unusual. This is, this is different than what you would have expected culturally. So culturally, it would have been dishonoring to the bridegroom to show up late but they still would have been permitted in. Maybe they would have been talked down a little bit, but they would have been invited in. The point of difference here, the point of departure from the cultural context is the harshness of the speech and the verdict. Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. This knowing language is covenantal language. I have no relationship. I see your face. I know who you are. I have no relationship with you. Nothing to do with you, and you have nothing to do with me. It is the complete severing of relationship. reminding us again that Jesus is not simply talking about a wedding party. He's talking about where our souls will spend eternity. Verse 13, watch, therefore, because you don't know either the day or the hour. The parable of the lamp is saying to us, get ready to wait a long time. The question that it asks is, do you have enough oil? <laughs> what, is that? what does that mean to have enough oil? What does that actually mean? Well, if you live in Thunder Bay, you have a block heater in your car. Because <laughs> it's going to get cold. You know that, and you're going to need your car to start if you live in the boonies on the edge of the grid where power lines often fall, you have a generator on your property because at some point power's going to get cut, but you're going to need it. So you know, if you live in a place called Tornado Alley, you should have something like a plan, you know, like a storm shelter or something like that where you can go in order to be safe because you know what's coming. Having enough oil means you're ready to endure for a long time because you know that's what's coming. So what does it mean? To be faithfully ready. What does this faithful readiness look like? Okay, it's going to take place over a long time, but what is it going to look like? That's what the next parable is told to give us, a picture of what it actually looks like. Verse 14, Jesus says, It'll be, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Again, a little bit of cultural background here important for us. Um, this man is not just any man to these servants. He is the master. We're going to read later to the servants. And the word for servants is a little bit stronger than what the word servants would imply. It's something closer to slaves. They're indentured servitude. It is, it is not, like, um, it's not like chattel slavery, but at the same time, they don't have the right to say no to their master, if, if that makes sense. Uh, so, so, so basically, they are responsible to their master... But they're entrusted with, with great things. This is, it's still a role that involves some nobility. They're entrusted with, no, note the way this is worded, with his property. It's not their stuff that they're given. It's not given to them for them. It's given to them for the master. That's the whole point. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent, to each according to his ability. Don't read that part over too fast. That's going to be significant. He gave to each according to their ability. Now, um, if you have a steady Bible, you probably have a little footnote that's going to explain something of the conversion. Um, for the sake of round numbers, let's just go with this. Let's say five talents works out to something in the neighborhood of about $5 million. Two talents, then be about $2 million one talent would be about $1 million. Understand, they are being entrusted with something incredibly significant. These are not small things that are being entrusted to these servants. He entrusts them according to their ability, and then he goes away. He who had received the five talents went, notice this, went at once. There's an eagerness, a zeal to his diligence, to, to his obedience. He went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. Verse 18, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Again, notice, it's his master's money. It's not his money. Now after a long time, verse 19, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made you five talents more. His master said to him, well done. Yeah, I guess. Someone makes you five million bucks while you're gone? Hey, that's a pretty sweet deal. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I've made two talents more. And his master said to him the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, listen to what he says. Listen how he he reasons through what he's done. This was how he was thinking. Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man. You know, there's nothing in the parable, nothing at all in the parable that inclines us to think this was a true testimony about the man. But, this is what this servant thought. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. But his master answered him, not good and faithful servant, but you wicked and slothful Servant. You knew? You knew this, did you? You knew that I reap where I haven't sown, that I gather where I haven't scattered? Then if that was true, if that's really true, you ought to have invested my money, at least with the bankers, at least like a savings account or something. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him. Give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has, not even what he has will be taken taken away, and again, look at the disproportionate response. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You notice the, the difference between the good and faithful servants and the wicked and slothful servant. It's not skill, it's not great skill that the master is honoring, right? He, he knew that there were different levels of ability from the beginning. He understands that about us. Some of us, just frankly, some of us have more skill than others, more ability, more capacity than others. That's not what he's judging. And it's not the amount of return, his words of praise were the exact same for the one who brought back two talents as the one who brought back five talents. The difference, rather, is, is, is two things. First, it's the disposition of the servant's heart toward the master. It's how the servant looks at and relates to the master, what the servant thinks about the master that changes everything. That's the first thing that's different. And from that flows the second thing it's just a willingness to do the task that you've been given. Just do the work that's been given to you. These, these two things define for us faithful readiness. This is what we need. We need hearts that are well disposed to our master so that we'll be willing to diligently obey the tasks, the work that he's given to us. We need to be faithfully ready. Okay, but how? Here's the second thing we want to think about how. How is it that we, we aim to be faithfully ready? Again, understand it all begins with the disposition of our hearts. And, and you know this, right? You can do the same task one way or another. Um, in, in in various marriages, I know um, people, you, you guys are probably familiar with love languages. And so for some people, it's like quality time, and physical touch, and words of affirmation, and, and all these things. My um, my, my, my wife has at least two love languages. One is comfy clothes, and, and the other one is uh, back scratching. I mean, those are her two love languages. Those are the things that, that she loves. And, and now, no so, so, so here's, here's the thing. If I'm in comfy clothes, and I'm watching TV, and she comes near to me, I know what my task is going to be. There's, there's going to be some maintenance that needs to be done here. And, and now here, here's, here, here's the thing. I can do that one of two ways. If my heart in that moment is favorably disposed towards her, it's a joy. I get to be close to her. Uh, I get to touch her, bless her, serve her, and I know that she enjoys it. But if I'm like kind of bitter, like if I feel like I've been slighted that day, or I I I'm just kind of in a grouchy mood, I'm not inclined towards her. And she says, "Can you scratch my back?" I'm like, "It's a lot of work. It's not a lot of work, but it feels like a lot of work. Why would that be a lot of work?" Because my heart is not inclined towards it. You know what that is, right? You, you, guys, you guys, you have kids, and you know like when your kids are happy and they're in a good mood and they think you're a great parent and you give them something to do. Hey, can you, can you help clean up the dishes after, after dinner? Sure, not a problem. You know, and then you ask the same kids the next day and they're in a terrible mood and all of a sudden it's like, this is the most unjust thing that's ever been demanded of a human. Me clean the dishes? Uh, not that that ever happens in our house. I'm sure it happens in some of your houses. (laughs) The disposition of a heart affects the way we approach the command, right? This is what we see in verse 24. I knew you to be a hard man. This is how I'm looking at you. You are a hard master. And so the commands become fearful and exceedingly harsh, it's overwhelming. At root in our disobedience, in our unfaithfulness, in our unwillingness to obey, to do the work that's been given to us, more often than not, it's simply a matter of our heart not being right in how we perceive the one who's given us the command. See, um, Satan's an old dog. He doesn't have new tricks. Remember what he said to Eve in the beginning? It's not a hardship to just not eat this one fruit, right? Like We understand that, right? got the whole garden, like the whole world. It's just this one fruit. Don't eat that. But what did Satan say to her? You he won't surely die. God knows that there's something better for you. If you just eat, you'll become like him. His heart is not for you, Eve. His heart is against you. His heart's trying to keep you down. And when you believe that the one who's giving you the command is against you rather than for you, the commands become really hard to obey. So as a church, our reality is similar, right? We're going to be called in coming days to continue to proclaim what we've always proclaimed, the exclusivity of Christ. The reality that there's no other name under heaven under which we by which we may be saved than Jesus alone. We're going to be called to continue to preach what the Bible says about sexual holiness and purity, regardless of who stands against us or whatever laws are made or passed or not. We're going to be called to take hard stance on things that cost us. Are we going to view that as a hardship? Or are we going to gladly obey with joy, knowing that the God who gave us the command is for us, How do we do that? How do we maintain a disposition of joy and love towards the master? Only if we maintain the gospel as the glasses through which we behold our God. It's in the gospel, the message of Christ crucified for sinners, that we once and for all understand. He is for us. Listen, it was the Father's will to crush him. Didn't we just sing that this morning? The Father was willing to sacrifice not himself, but to sacrifice his own son. What amazing, what astounding love. It was his will to crush him. Why? Because he would bear our transgressions, he would bear our iniquities. The Son of God left glory and ease. Left the acceptance of the Father. Left the praise of the angels. Left unbroken fellowship with the Trinity to come and to walk on earth and to know hunger and thirst and tiredness and rejection and misunderstanding and quarrels and fights and all the things that are wearing you down. He knew them. But he chose to. Because he's for you. He took your sin, your rebellion on himself. He bore your sin in his body on the cross. And he took the fullness of the wrath of God that you deserved. He took it for you. And he rose on the third day. So that you would be made alive to God. He ever lives. Why? To make intercession for you. You, stubborn idiot that you are. (laughs) He continues to live to make intercession for you. He prays for you even now. And his love will not be broken. He is returning for us and our eyes will behold him. And in an instant, we will become like him because we'll see him as he is. And everyone who has hoped in him will be pure as he is pure, welcomed into eternal fellowship, the joy of our master. Not because you're good, but because he's for you. He has spoken definitively to us in the cross and the resurrection. The one who has given his son freely for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As a church, how do we make sure our hearts maintain the right posture towards our God? By preaching the gospel week after week. By celebrating the gospel in song like James told us last week. Singing, believing, reminding ourselves, stirring our affections so that our disposition is changed. And we remember that he who gives us the commands is for us once and for all. We need to understand that if the fruit of faithful obedience is what we're after in the life of our church, it's only going to come as we till the soil of our hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ week after week. Once our disposition is settled, that's the first step in the how. Once the disposition is settled, the next step is getting busy with a willingness to do what he has given us to do. To, To do it So that we would have something to give back to him. Now we can theologically confuse ourselves and sometimes overthink this and be like no no I'm not supposed to have anything to give to him it's it's all by grace yes it's true it's all by grace but if you think somehow it's works righteousness or pride or something to want to have something to give back to God who's given so much to you then I would challenge you to look in the face of a child who has worked hard on a finger painting that they're presenting to their parents and tell them it's pride when you take joy in what they give you it's just love it's love. Of course, if your heart is stirred with affection for him, you want to have something to give back to him, and so we get busy with the work that he has given to us. Verse 21, the master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. And We have joy in that moment, right? Uh, you, you have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. There's a challenge here in two different directions, and I think we need to feel the challenge in both directions. One, we need to feel the challenge to be faithful, which means to be diligent, which means to not grow slothful, to not be asleep at the wheel, to not be picking dandelions, but to get busy as a local church, to continue to be busy with Great Commission work, with evangelizing our neighbors, with discipling one another, with planting churches globally. Because the gospel needs to go forward. And this is the work that God has given to local churches. What Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 to the local church there. First of all then, I urge that prayers, supplications, thanksgivings, intercessions be made. We need to be busy, faithful, diligently praying together. The basic Great Commission work of a local church. We need to be busy faithful with this not bored not sleepy not slacking but diligently like the first servant at once with eagerness that's the one tension we need to feel here's here's the other tension we need to understand that we need to be faithful and diligent according to our Ability according to what's been entrusted to us, recognizing that there are built in limitations to any one person and to any one local church. And our master knows that, he understands that. He remembers our frame, he knows that we are dust, he knows our skill, he knows our capacity. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the abstract, right? On the one hand, we could just preach about, we need to pray and we need to sing and we need to preach and we need to go plant churches. But it, it can feel so overwhelming. When have we ever as a church prayed enough, discipled enough, evangelized enough, preached enough? You'll never, ever do enough. So we need to recognize the reality that Jesus builds into this parable we just need to make sure we're faithful. Faithful with our ability and with our capacity because some local churches, people live all in the same block and they can do all kinds of fellowship and discipleship and all kinds of things that we can't do. Some churches have millionaires fill in the pews. They've got money to give to foreign missions that we don't have. Some Local churches of people whose schedules align so they can do prayer mornings before they go to work. There are all kinds of different ways that God has equipped and built and strengthened different local churches. What are we supposed to do as a church? Be faithful, be faithful with our abilities knowing that we live in the 21st century in Toronto in the midst of a pandemic when people are tired, when we live often far apart from one another, when there's a million other things demanding your time and attention, many of which legitimate, like care for your family and diligence in your job. But can we pray monthly? Can we plan To get together in one another's homes, whether that's in small groups or informally in friendship, pursuing one another in conversation? Can we pursue discipleship in our classes or informally on our own? Can we gather, can we gather as a church weekly and sing with all of our heart to the Lord? Teaching and admonishing, instructing and encouraging one another. These are things that we can do and must do faithfully and diligently. But, but here's the thing. This is the part that I love. Ready? All of this application, this is my favorite kind of application because, listen, you're doing it already. <laughs> I'm just telling you to do what you're already doing. As a church, I have seen over 11 years, you have given yourselves generously, financially, for the spread of the gospel. You have listened well to sermons. This is my favorite church in the world of all the churches I've ever been in to preach because you listen, you engage, you talk afterwards, you participate in the sermons. This is a joy. You've cared for one another in need. You've been generous with, one another. You have encouraged and discipled one another. You have pursued one another. You sing like you mean it already. You've been involved in planting and strengthening churches. I'm not saying let's do something new. I'm saying let's keep going. Don't get distracted by the dandelions. Don't gaze at the clouds, church. Let's keep going with the work that's been begun. In case you're you're like me, and you feel maybe in this season in particular, but maybe this is a recurring thing for you. You feel like I don't know, like I might just not have enough flask in the, or enough oil in the flask at, at this point. It, it feels like the oil's running low like we're getting tired, I want to end by just thinking about the why. I'm hoping to fill our flasks with the why. Why? Why do we aim to be faithfully ready? Well, I think for the same reason, I know you well enough to know how you'd answer this. I think for the same reason, you would be excited to win the lottery. (laughs) I mean, you win the lottery presumably there's joy for you, right? (laughs) You get joy, but also I know you well enough to know that if you won the lottery, do you know what would happen out of the overflow? You would bless those around you. You would give generously and abundantly to those around you so that they would have blessing too. And that's the same reason why we need to be diligently ready, faithfully ready. Look at what the master says again in verse 21. He says, You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. There is joy. There's joy for you. There's joy for you. Like there's joy in the labor, right? That's why working is better than winning the lottery anyway. Not because of the pay, but because there's joy in the labor itself, right? There's joy in the labor, but there's also joy here that remains on the other side of the labor in the reward. Enter into the joy of your master. As much joy as we have in singing and preaching and evangelizing and planting churches and doing all the work of a local church, there is more joy still to come, glorious joy still to come, joy sufficient that Jesus, in looking to that joy, would be able to endure Cross And to despise the shame because he knew the joy that was to come at the right hand of the Father. It's the same joy that awaits us in Psalm 16 that the psalmist speaks to us. The joy of our master is not simply a joy that we're called to. It's a joy that we're called into in Psalm 16. The psalmist says, Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One seek corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There awaits, as Nick told us this morning, in reality, pleasures forevermore in the presence of our God. And so we want to be faithfully ready for our own joy. But here's the second why. It's for the deliverance of others. See what Jesus says in verse 29? To everyone who has, more will be given. He'll have an abundance. But there are some who will not so be blessed from the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. Any of the joy, the knowledge of God, the goodness, the truth, the beauty in creation that they have experienced and enjoyed now will be removed. And he says in verse 30, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The exact opposite of the joy of the master is the absence of the master, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't want this to be the fate for anyone of our neighbors, anyone in the nations. At the end of this gospel, in just a few chapters, Jesus is going to give a commission to go and to make disciples of all nations. And that commission is given to a specific group of people, the church, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. They're to go and to take that good news everywhere that they go. So God's plan for the deliverance of your neighbors of your coworkers, of the people around us in the city of Toronto here, God's plan is you. It's us. It's Grace Fellowship Church and the other local churches he's left here in the city to proclaim the gospel. Our faithful readiness matters because we are God's plan for saving people in Toronto. If they're going to avoid this fate, then we must be faithfully ready, engaging in the work that he's given us to do. Can I tell you what's happened so far? In 11 years, people who were destined for weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness have seen the light. They've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. And they now anticipate eternal joy. Countless others have received the seed of the gospel and we're waiting, waiting for God to bring fruit. So many of us have grown from immature, weak, Christians being tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, suffering, and thing that we experience. We've been strengthened and matured. We've grown in our faith. Week after week, you have pushed back the darkness in this city as you have sung the truths of God's glorious light. Local churches have been planted and strengthened. In Toronto, in Mexico, in India, in Kazakhstan, in Serbia, more to come. The gospel's going forward all over the world and in the city of Toronto because of you, your faithful readiness. So we keep going because work remains. Our master has not yet returned But he is coming. Whether that's 11 more years or 11,000 years, may we be found as a church that is faithfully ready, our hearts disposed towards our master, eagerly engaging the task that's been entrusted to us. Let's pray.